0: Alaska, or just about anywhere the fish are biting. Rod and Real Radio brought to you by El Cajon Ford at Broadway and Main or online at ElCajonFord.com. Whether it's time for a new or used car or truck or you need to take advantage of San Diego's best quick lane for service with genuine Ford parts, brand name tires at competitive prices, remember nobody beats El Cajon Ford. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours at radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Real Radio, the best stop on your radio dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now, here's your host, Hop Along, John Cassidy.
1: Well, Mark Larson, thank you, and San Diego, welcome to Rod and Real Radio. I am, indeed, your underfished host, Hop Along, John Cassidy. It is a pleasure to have you with us tonight Hey, you know, I know it's been a hectic week with all the fires uh, out there, the unusual weather we've been having here in Southern California, but we're going to be talking to you tonight about the fishing that we're still seeing out here. The fishing is still great, and we're going to give you a lot of examples of it tonight. Let me uh, just go through our guest list and let you know what's happening here. First out of the gate, we're going to have Shane Warner, and Shane Warner is with the Bridgeport Fish Enhancement Program. We're going to talk about what that program's about, how successful it's been, how it looks like for the future. So Shane's going to be with us right in the beginning. And then later on to talk uh, to us about this epic bite of 2017, Captain Rick Russell from Chief Sport Fishing is going to be with us. Boy, I tell you, The chief is going on on down south, and they can give you a real different wrinkle in your fishing experience. So (laughs) you're going to want to hear about what Rick's doing out there. We're going to have him on later on tonight. And then in the six o'clock hour, Mike Shane, he's the director of the fisheries. uh, uh, He's the director of fisheries enhancement for Hubs SeaWorld Research. We're going to talk about what they're doing, a little bit about their program, how we can help support them, and what it's looking like for the future. And then, if that isn't enough, Rob Tressler from the dynamic duo of Rob and Lori Tressler, they were out again uh, uh, just this past weekend. They went out on the Aztecs. They just had limits of fish out there. Rob's going to come on from a fisherman's standpoint and tell us, hey, how's the best way to take advantage of this uh, this tremendous bite and how the bite has changed since the bite of maybe three or four weeks ago. So it's a great show lined up for you tonight, but before we get underhand, first of all, Wendy Toshihara, she's not going to be with us. She's up in Santa Barbara. She is helping friends that are in harm's way right now from the Thomas Fire making sure that those people are squared away and settled and everything like that. I'm sure Wendy's listening to us. Wendy, great job out there. Please keep safe. No kidding. Yeah, but as always, uh, with us is my uh, co-host. He is the voice of one 800 Bass Boat, a pretty darn good freshwater and saltwater fisherman, and his own right, Stan Vandenberg. Stan, how you Bye. doing tonight, sir?
2: It's going well. Almost Merry Christmas, everybody, and you know, you got a—I have to say a, a shout-out to you from a guy that we worked with a while back. I got, just before we came on the air, I got an email from John Watanabe.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah. And, and he said, to say hi to you. He mentioned us, uh, Rod Real Radio, and working with us in an article he wrote while he was running around in the Holy Land and <laughs> and, and was talking about Rod Real Radio and the Sea of Galilee. So... <laughs> So there you go. But John Watt and Bobby said to say
1: aye. Man, that is great. And, hey, hey, you know what, Stan? I also have to thank the listeners that just came out of the woodwork last weekend. We had that interview with uh, Tommy Gomez and Bill Boyce with regarding the two, industry, two industries. A lot of people said they had absolutely no idea what had happened to the tuna industry. They want to hear more about it, so when we get the opportunity, we're going to put maybe an enhanced show together because I know you guys need to know the real story on what happened to the tuna industry here in Southern California.
2: That was good stuff, no doubt about it.
1: Yeah, you got it. Hey, but let's get on to our first guest, Dan. I know this is also... An area that is near and dear to your heart, and that's the stocking of trout up in the Eastern Sierras. Well, I have you with us betcha. Mr. Shane Warner, and Shane is with the Bridgeport Fish Enhancement Program. And Shane, welcome to Rod and Radio.
3: Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's been a, it's a it's an honor. Thank you.
1: Hey, it is indeed great to have you with us, Shane. And and you know, for those people that are not familiar, first of all, with your program. I know those that are, go up to the Bridgeport area, they're probably well familiar with it, but tell a little bit us a little bit about how the program got going and what you've been doing.
3: Well, the program got going because we, we, had a, we saw a need for people that were coming up to the Bridgeport area to come up and go fishing, and they were bringing their families and, and everything, and we just wanted to keep that experience for all the young um, fishermen that are out there to keep that, um, that trend going. So what they decided to do was they formed the Bridgeport Fish and Enhancement Foundation, and that organization is all volunteer. Uh, they're all basically voluntary um, people, and they rely solely on just uh, donations to the Bridgeport Fish and Enhancement Foundation. So this got started several years ago, um, we, we basically, you know, we raise money and collect money uh, we have an annual uh, fishing tournament that helps fund those those efforts of um, you know stocking the fish and and the money that it, you know it takes to do that. So this year alone um, in 2018, or excuse me, 17, um, it was actually uh, we raised a, you know basically seventeen thousand dollars and that was spent you know and we spent that all on stocking four to eleven pound um, trophy trout up in the Bridgeport area. Yippee! I <laughs> Yeah. And and you know it's really been uh it's been a blessing because all of these fish we've put into Upper Twin Lake, Lower Twin Lake, Robinson Creek, Bridgeport Reservoir, um Big and Little Virginia Lakes, Trumbull Lake and Virginia Creek. Wow. So anybody that's coming up to the the Sierras in that area is going to have just a great time fishing and enjoying themselves out in the Eastern Sierras. One of my favorite areas in, in the world is Bridgeport, but I kind of grew up up there fishing with the Annettes and
2: Upper Twin, and uh, my family and theirs were, were great friends. But in in the, the last umpteen years, too, we've had our group of guys, the uh, finest annual trout invitational tournament down there, Crowley, mm-hmm. and uh, started our own program to put the more fish in than we took out, and uh, and I know Steve Marty, when he was up there, uh, had a program going. I don't know if he's, I, he's not involved with that anymore. Did you guys take
3: that over? No, I, I don't think there's anybody that actually took that over. Uh, I think we're just trying to do what we can do, you know, from the Bridgeport uh, Fish Enhancement Foundation, and we're just, you know, we're not trying to, um, you know, step on anybody's toes by no means, but the efforts that are that we're doing is, is just trying to raise enough money and awareness. And, you know, some of the things that we're doing, it's not only just about fishing. It's about, you know, educating the, the young people out there. And, and, you know, I know that the BFEF went to the local schools and they gave away free rods and reels and tackle boxes. And um, they do an annual um, fishing tournament up at the, uh, the Marine base there at the Mountain Warfare Center for the Marines and we donate all the, the fish for that for all the kids and the families that are, you know, in the military. And it's just a really good time had by all on, on that side, of the on the eastern
2: side. That's great. You know, because I,
3: I, I, I'm
2: not well-versed with the Bridgeport found the new foundation there, uh, but I, anything you've got in a situation where you can teach kids and get them involved, uh, that is what is the most needed out there, get the parents and well, kids just, to come back out and start fishing again.
3: Yeah, and just, just in our tournament alone, back on June 24th, uh, we had over 102 participants. And we had 23 junior um, anglers that, that participated. And one of those anglers actually got a $500 educational. Um, basically, it's a, a fund that we, we put together. And a lot of this money is just on, based on donation. And that one was based on the Kokanee Power actually donated that money for a sponsorship for one of the young anglers. and I, you know. I'm I'm a instructor for a local fire academy here in um, Sonora, California, and just knowing that how how challenging it is for people to to go to school, it's it's really a good time for people to you know reach out and be able to help those that may not you know have the the funds to go to school, and it may may change some of the minds of some of the young people as to maybe following up and continuing their education. No, I don't. That you you spoke of the kokanee. Uh, a lot
2: of people don't know anything about Coconey or. or the, the Bridgeport Arena and how that fish is a part of it, too.
3: Right, right. Um, one of the things, too, that I wanted to share with you is that we just got done stocking. Um, just for the, just alone, we, we just did a final stocking just before the closer, and we, we just dumped in another 1,200 pounds um, of fish just right before the season ended. And hopefully those are going to be growing, you know, nice and fat by the 2018, you know, opener. And one of the, one of the other things that I thought was really kind of interesting that we've been doing over here is we we partnered up with um, uh, we a real uh, recovery retreat and up here we have the Honeywell Ranch that's a well known ranch for people to come and stay at but this was kind of special and dear to our hearts because this was something that we did um, as kind of a as helping out um, it's basically people that are recovering from cancer or have cancer or just found out about cancer. And so this uh, real recovery retreat, we were able to take some, some of the men that were involved in this program out fishing, and mainly they kind of stick to fly fishing. We actually took them out on the boat and um, did some, some time with them, you know, just uh, lake fishing. And then all of those people actually got some, some rods and reels and tackle donated as well. That is very, very cool. The Honeywell Ranch, for these people that don't know, when, when you
2: get to Bridgeport and you take a left-hand turn and you're headed up into the... So the Twin Lakes up there, a lot of that area is the Honeywell Ranch uh, Arena out there, and I know they
3: they've done a lot of work over the years. Yes, they have, and 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 you know it, that's what it boils down to is you got to you got you to gotta pay everything forward, and I think by you know all of us that are involved in all the volunteering that we do to make all this happen, it's just a it's a really nice time to be able to sit back and and kind of reap the benefits of watching somebody that's struggling go out there and actually have a good day on the water just enjoying themselves and we all can you know vouch for that because we're all into fishing but especially when somebody's having a real tough time with a medical um, you know situation and you know it's just nice to be able to know that we can help them out during that time.
2: Shane, do they ask for volunteers or guys to come up there with boats and
3: take these guys out also or is yeah, that available? I think, um, you know uh, real recovery retreat is actually a nationwide organization so <laughs> I just uh, Got on their website prior to this, uh, you know, the show tonight, and they're they're nationwide. But I, there's also a, a place where you can actually call and, and volunteer your services too. So that may be something in the future that we may get involved with because I know that Bridgeport is one of the areas that they take these people
1: to. Shane, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your fish and where those fish come from, uh, and how you work with the Department of Fish and Wildlife with regards to. Planting fish in, in some of these locations.
3: Well, you know, one of the things that we do is uh, we team up with a Desert Springs Trout Farm, um, and they're up out of uh, Oregon, and they come down, and, and they always do the stocking here locally for the Bridgeport area. And this year, um, as I said, you know, we dumped already a bunch of fish in, um, you know, about 1,200 pounds worth, and this year the new fish that are being planted actually have, like, a purple tag on, on the fin. So if any one of those people, you know, once the season opens, uh, catch one of those purple tagged fish, they're to take that, that tagged fish into uh, Ken's uh, Sporting Goods there, and they're supposed to be able to redeem a free voucher to get involved in our, our June um, trout tournament again, and that's free of charge if you, if you have caught one of the tagged fish. Now that's cool, too. When is the June tournament? The June tournament is actually, it's going to be on June twenty third, 2018 this year. It's always the, the weekend after Father's Day. And we've had a really good turnout. This will be our 15th annual uh, tournament this year. And we really gear it towards a lot of the kids. Every one of the kids that enter the tournament always walk away with a brand new rod and reel and tackle to support that. And I, I, I watched all those kids last year at the, at the um, dinner that we did. And it was just absolutely incredible, some of the, the, the kids that had never fished before and seeing all the smiles and all the faces of just reaching out and touching these little kids by giving them something to, to be able to remember and kind of put in that keepsake box of theirs. That's excellent. Very, very good.
1: Now, Shane, when it, when it comes back to the stocking of fish, does the uh, do you buy the fish or does the enhancement program buy the fish and then they are specially tagged and then they're planted along with... Other plants that are being put in at that time by that that particular organization.
3: If if the timing is correct, they they will um, uh, dump those fish, um, you know, in conjunction with fishing game. Typically, um, as we have the money, we will go out there and order the fish, and we never really know. They give us kind of a you know couple day notice as to when they're going to be coming down, um, and sometimes that we'll team up with the Department of Fishing and Game, and other times we'll just go out there and plant plant the fish and. Various locations, you know, and they work close closely with the uh, you know the Department of Fish and Wildlife to do this. And one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is, you know, these fish are coming a long ways, but um, we've only caught um, out of all the the fish that we've actually planted, there's only been about half of them caught. So there's still a lot of big fish that are, are roaming around out there for yeah. people to catch.
1: Hey, hey, we are speaking with Shane Warner. He's from the Bridgeport Fish Enhancement uh, Program. Uh, we've got to take a break right now. Shane, can you stay on with us a little longer? Yes, I can. All right. Hey, Perfect. Hey, Stan, I are on tonight. Wendy, she just sent me a note. She and Merritt are evacuating up there in front of the Thomas Fire out of Santa Barbara. So, guys, we hope you're doing well. We know our prayers are with you. Uh, yeah, God safe. bless them. They
2: were three blocks from the uh, mandatory evacuation line. Uh, just outside of it. So th- that's pretty spooky.
1: You've got to believe it. Hey, we're going to take a break right now. you listen to Ron Real Radio on AM 540 or at ronreelradio.com. We'll be back after these messages. Music.
6: 2015 and 16, Quantum Fishing's gone and done it again for you with the brand new redesigned Smoke PT Reel Series. Everything from your spinning reels all the way to your baitcasters, the PTA design has the new PTXA frame, lighter, stronger, bone crushing drag, Quantum Fishing. We are performance tuned. Check them out at Angler's Arsenal in La Mesa or anglersarsenal.com or give us a call at 619-466-8355.
7: Hi, this is BSS record holder Dean Rojas. El
8: Cajon Ford helped me when I got started in my career, and let them help you with a new F-Series Ford truck. And remember, nobody beats El Cajon Ford. We do want to
1: welcome you this Sunday evening to Rod Real Reel Radio. Stan Vandenberg's with us tonight. Just got a note, Wendy Toshahara and Merritt, they have their truck loaded, and they are evacuating. Uh, I believe it's probably Merritt's home in Santa Barbara. They uh, put their uh, their valuables in that thing. They're in harm's way right now. They're getting the heck out of there and getting safe. So uh, our prayers are with you, uh, Wendy and Merritt, and uh, we hope that uh, maybe before the end of the show you can give us an update and give us some good information on what's happening up there. And we got Shane Warner with us. He's from the Bridgeport Fish Enhancement uh, Program. And, and Shane, the... The pictures that I've seen that have come from the Bridgeport Fish Enhancement Program, you guys put some nice fish in there, uh, you know, in, into the bodies of water up there. And I've got to tell you, uh, you say that there's a lot of them that haven't been caught this season.
3: Yes, but there's still a lot of them out there in all the waters around Bridgeport. We've, uh, You know, I fished over there quite a bit this summer, and I've never caught a tagged fish, but I, I took a... A friend of mine out for the first time and and his first time on my boat, he was able to catch one of the tagged fish and it was a six and a half pound rainbow, oh, you know, the biggest nice fish start. he'd ever caught. You know that was out of a local uh, lake like that. So it's just been a lot of fun. We've uh, we really encourage people to go over there. Um, you know, and I and I just want to say that we're really focusing on the kids too. If you, if there's a family that comes over and they really want to go fishing, and they've never fished before, between all the people. There in Bridgeport, you know, from the store owners to just the locals. I mean, everybody's there to help, and it's just fun to watch um, people and families that, are, that don't know much about it to actually get educated and be able to go out there and actually perform the, you know, and go fishing and, and be successful.
1: Well, I can imagine. And uh, uh, Stan, you know the people really well up there at Ken's. They bend over backwards, like most bait and tackle stores do, especially smaller you know, mom-pop operations to make sure that when the people come in there, they get the right equipment, they're not oversold, they get the instructions so they can go out there and have a great time.
2: Well, that's, that's right. But, you know, they've been doing that for years and years and years. And, and Ken's is the tackle shop when you come into Bridgeport. It's on the right-hand side. When you see the courthouse right next door is Ken's and, and the famous ice chest out in front where you can go in and see what the big brown whatever big rainbow has got that week. A lot of them are in there. But they're always supportive, and, and the good thing about the whole arena up there—it's it, a wonderful. It's one of my favorite places in the Sierras. Period. I, I just love Bridgeport and the whole area. Uh, you can fish a lot of different uh, arenas up there. Whether you want the the East Fork, or, I mean the East Walker, or the Reservoir, or the Twin Lakes, or you've got the the Creeks and Robinson Creek and. Um, this, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of them up there. You can even hike around. But, like, you've got Virginia lakes and Green Lakes that are accessible, and uh, it's a fun arena to fish no matter what. But the people up there have always been super, super, super good about taking care of the people coming up there and telling them where are the best places to go, what to throw, uh, the whole nine yards. So it, it, it makes it for a fun area to go to with a family i think what they're doing up there now is great
1: yeah hey shane uh, did you happen to mention because unfortunately i was distracted a little bit while you were uh, talking earlier that what was the largest tag fish that has been brought in so far not only this season but you know that it the the foundation was uh, responsible for planting
3: you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I can I, there's the number in my head of of eight pounds, and I don't know if that is a correct uh, measurement and you know weight um, for that fish. But I, I do know that there was some big fish caught this year, um, and I don't have the exact. Uh, Ken Ken Hoffman, who's actually one of the the um, on the board for the Bridgeport Fish and Enhancement Foundation, he's in charge of all that, and I was not able to obtain that before tonight's uh, show. Um, but I can find out for maybe a future show, and we can share that information.
1: That would be good. Now, if people want to find out more about you, what you guys are doing, maybe contact you when you're up there, donate to the program. Uh, how's the best way to go about doing that, Shane?
3: Well, we have a we have a website that you can go to. It's Bridgeport, uh, excuse me, Bridgeport Fishing Enhancement Foundation dot com. And you know, we're on Facebook. If you get a hold of you just kind of type that in and kind of search for it the bridgeport fishing enhancement foundation is linked to the eastern sierra fishing um, on facebook and there's just a there's a lot of information out there Uh, if you just want to donate you really don't want to fish um, they can always send money in to we have a we have a PO box 23 bridgeport california 93517 and i just think that if People haven't experienced that experience of going over to the eastern side. I I encourage people to go up there and just find out because the local people are really, um, they're just really neat people just trying to, you know, encourage people to go fishing. And, you know, they're seasonal workers basically because, you know, as you well know, in the the wintertime they're not working and, you know, the, the tourism kind of slows down. So the more I can educate people and the more I can get people to go over there, I'm happy because I love spending, you know, some of my favorite time of of the year, which is usually the summer, to go over there and go fishing.
1: Right. Now, now Shane, in the time that we have left, you were telling us how much you like educating people, but you are really an important part of education. When you're not fishing, tell us a little bit about what you do in real life.
3: Well, I'm training new firefighters right now. I have an academy. I work for Columbia College, uh, and I'm the fire academy program coordinator. So... I instruct, uh, you know, young men and women that are trying to get in the firefighting field. And as you guys well know, you guys are going through a series of fires right now. And we train a lot of those people, and we we, we put them in, and place them in internship positions or with um you know with seasonal work. And a lot of them are working for Cal Fire and Forest Service and BLM and the Park Service now. So they're probably some of those people that you'll see out there on those fire lines out there. And I just wanted to give a big shout-out to all those firefighters in Southern California and, uh, you know, just stay safe and keep your head on a swivel and make sure that, you know, you all come home safe. No kidding, and they're spread pretty doggone thin right now. Yes, they
1: are. You know, last uh, year when we talked to you, uh, you were having uh, tremendous fires up there in in the Sierras and stuff like that. Now it's happening here in the Southern California area. I I know I don't want to... You know, this may not be your bailiwick or something like that, but our governor just came out and said, hey, this is the new normal, and, uh, uh, you know, it's warm here, and, you know, in some other words, Is is what's happening here? Is this a combination of maybe climate change? Uh, is it a, what's happening? We're seeing uh, forest management uh uh, you know is it civilization encroaching into the wildlands? Uh, what what's happening here in your estimation if if you can feel like you can talk about it jane
3: well i, I think that you know definitely it's a climate change and you know we're seeing everything from bark beetle up here killing the trees to you know we we could probably do a little bit better job on forest management but you know that's all debatable but i think the 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 you know the kind of the the down-to-earth type, you know, um, setting is just that we're not getting the rain that we we normally get. I mean, I'm looking at temperatures outside today that were, you know, in the the probably 68 or 69 degrees for December up here where I live in Groveland up by Yosemite. And, you know, that's not normal weather for us to be having this time of the year. So I think there's a combination of things, and, you know, unfortunately with those combinations, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this in the future. We're seeing fire seasons right now. I'm actually going into, you know, nine, ten months out of the year. And that's really, you know, not our, our normal pattern that we would have. So I think that people should just do their clearances around their houses and always have a, an escape plan and things ready to go in case that time, you know, when you get that knock on the door. And it could happen to any one of us. We saw that up here with Santa Rosa and the fires up north of us um, this year as well. And now you guys are experiencing them down there in Southern California.
1: So. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a tremendous education program that you have there. We have seen some dynamic footage of the firefighters, whether it was up in the Skirball Fire that went through the Brentwood area, the firefighters trying to defend homes, whether it was a Lilac Fire here with uh, a, a, a whole uh, a motorhome park being destroyed, yet the firefighters are sitting here saving people, saving horses, saving structures, and yet they're still going out and fighting on the perimeter. That's, that's got to be one heck of an educational experience that you're putting out to these people. That's a, that's a broad spectrum. Hey, well, welcome back to Ron Real Radio. Seemed like we had a little glitch over there. Stan, let's see, are you still with us?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, you know, every once in a while on live radio, things happen, and, and <laughs> that thing just happened.
1: Well, I, I'm not exactly sure what that thing was. And,
2: Nor and am I, but. Shane, every once I, in a while I don't know. If ever,
1: Shane, are you still with
3: us? Yes, I am.
1: Yeah, uh, I had asked you about the broad spectrum of training you give these firefighters. Uh, you know, priority individuals, and then it goes to uh, immediate homes, and then it's saving homes, and then it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the the fire itself. That's got to be a a tremendously broad spectrum of training that you give the firefighters here.
3: Yes, we do. And, and, you know, we just give them the basics. And what what we do from there is we, we try and place them in internships or in seasonal positions where they can kind of further their education. But we're giving them the basics to try and, you know, keep them safe out there and and just kind of train them up to where they can go out there and, and do the on-the-job type training. But they're getting a lot of these uh, firefighters are coming south, they're getting some fire behavior that a lot of the 20- and 30-year veterans in the fire service have never seen before. And, you know, and I'd heard some, you know, just some really disturbing things about the fire because I heard that it was traveling at a speed of like an acre, you know, um, every two seconds. Yes. You know these fires and just the the seventy mile an hour east winds that were blowing down there were just uh, showing some some fire behavior that I don't think a lot of us have experienced in our whole careers. So, you know, I can't say enough just for everybody to be safe. And we teach them how to be safe, and we teach them to, you know, have lookouts and, and provide safe zones so that nobody gets hurt or killed. And I just think that there's a a lot of a lot of people, you know out there that don't realize what the jobs are of these, these people until the time is, you know, until they make that phone call or they see it firsthand, so all I share, want to share is just, you know, next time you see a firefighter, just go up and shake their hands and say thank you, and they'll they'll be appreciated.
1: Man, it, it's such a thing. Uh, just tell me one other thing. Uh, uh, the relationship you have with municipalities that have bodies of water, we see the, the helicopters dipping down into lakes and ponds and and things like that. And I know, like, up there by the Thomas fire, uh, you have Lake, uh, you know, Kachuma, and you'll have Lake Casitas, uh, uh, and, you know, then you go farther north. Uh, do you have a working relationship with the municipalities that say, hey, guy, if we have to draw water from your lake, can we get it? Or is it like uh, uh, ask permission later, and it's uh, easier to do it now and ask for forgiveness later? What? How does well, that they- work?
3: Well, they usually have, you know, what they call like a mutual aid type agreement. And one of those things is they'll go out and talk with property owners, but usually, you know, in the heat of the battle, they're just going to go to the nearest and closest water source. And and if they have to, then they can, you know, recover that later and and go back in and fix things that may have been damaged to the fire or from, you know, firefighting efforts. So a lot of that is just working together, and people realize that, you know, there's just a lot of need during the time of a big fire like that for people to be using whatever they have available to them. So a lot of that you just really can't control until, you know, you get the fire put out and then you can kind of assess the damage. But most things that are going on out there are usually kind of a, like a pre-fire plan or a pre-thought-out process in which, you know, they look at different things and they look at, you know, the resources available to them when a big incident like this happens. We watched the the crane copters, you know, the the –
2: bigger copters with a, they've got a hose that they'll drop down and and they refill out of it just about any impoundment that's need to.
3: Yes, they're uh, very talented people. They they do a lot, there's a lot of training involved there, but, you know, they're, they're pulling resources from not only the local government, but they're pulling resources from the military as well um, when you see them out there. And the problem is, you know, usually, you know, we get our resources spread so thin, that's usually... One of the, the factors that is involved is, you know, they don't have enough personnel to be able to throw out, you know, something of this nature. But luckily, I mean, we, we we're kind of at our end of our fire season where there's still a lot of people available. So hopefully they can get these fires put out quickly, and hopefully the winds die down, and hopefully we get some rain.
1: You know, I've seen the program that uh, they put the firefighters through up in L.A., and I, I've got to tell you, the program of today and the program of ten or fifteen years ago, when it comes to instruction to, to to new recruits, is is completely different. But Shane, if if you can tell people that if there's one thing you leave the academy, that I want you to remember, whether it's five or ten years down the road from now, what might it be?
3: Well, I I think is is um, I, I always teach them good customer service and, you know, and being safe out there, but customer service to me has always been um, a big one, and just making sure that we are supporting the needs of the community, and the community is supporting the fire department, and, you know, now I think that more than anything, I mean, people that hadn't believed in the fire departments before are believing in them now because, you know, of these big fires and stuff, and, and, you know, you don't really think about those, those guys and gals that are out there because, you know, unless you're at the time of need, and... So I think that um, there's a lot of awareness that's been been um, brought up from all these fires, and I think there's going to be a lot more support being given to a lot of these firefighters. You know, after a lot of these big incidents have happened. So I usually just tell the academy, I said, you know what, just um, embrace your fellow firefighters, um, make good friends, keep your head on a swivel, and just make sure that you're given a good customer service at the end of the day. Right. Shane, where do you live? I live up in Groveland, up by Yosemite.
1: Oh, all right. Well, Shane Warner. We uh, originally called upon you to talk about the Bridgeport Fish Enhancement Program over there, and thank you for letting us know about that great program that you have. And also, you know, sometimes we deviate a little bit from the subject over here. I want to thank you a lot for educating us with regards to some of the things you're doing for the firefighters to help us here in Southern California and all throughout the state of California, Uh, you know much success in your efforts and we look forward to talking to you again in the not too distant future.
3: Well, thank you for having me and I appreciate you guys taking the time um, for us to speak to the Bridgeport Fish and Enhancement Foundation. I just want to say thank you to all the volunteers out there from the Bridgeport Fish and Enhancement Foundation and just keep up the solid work. Actually, we'd
2: like you to keep in touch with us and we'd like to help in any way we could to help support that.
3: Well, we thank you for that and um I will be doing that. I will get a hold of you guys and we'll keep you up to speed on what's going on up here.
1: All right. Hey, we got a break for some messages right now. You're listening to Ron Real Radio. Stan and I will be back after these messages.
7: Are you ready to sell your current boat and upgrade in preparation for the twenty seventeen fishing season? It's sure to be one for the bucks. I'm Zach Zorn, and a broker for Custler Yachts, located in San Diego. As one of the largest and most reputable brokerages on the West Coast, I can ensure that your boat will be sold in a timely manner, or that your dream boat will be found. If you want to sell your boat or looking to purchase one, call Zach Zorn at Custler Yachts, 760-815-8866, so that your name can be added to our long list of satisfied buyers and sellers. That's Zach Zorn, 760-815-8866. Hi, this is BSS record holder Dean Rojas.
8: El Cajon Ford helped me when I got started in my career and let them help you with a new F-Series Ford truck. And remember, nobody beats El Cajon Ford.
0: If you're serious about your fishing, choosing the right tackle is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. Iserline makes premium fishing lines including monofilament, Dacron, Spectra, fluorocarbon, battle-tested harnesses, and top-angler-tested Iserline tools and accessories. Iserline premium fishing products are created to provide you with the ultimate in strength, dependability, durability, high abrasion resistance, low stretch, and high quality. All Iserline products are 100% guaranteed against manufacturing defects. You just can't buy better value.
4: tuna hooks ring the hooks tuna doubles and many more don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook get gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now the warm weather is here and our lakes and rivers are brimming just remember if you love california and you love to boat please wear your life jacket and make sure everyone with you puts one on too save the ones you love a message from california state parks division of boating and waterways
2: this
1: portion of Rod and Reel Radio is brought to you by the Rocklease Fish Release System. Now you can quickly and easily release fish suffering from barotrauma back to the depths they were caught. Look or ask for the Rocklease at your local fishing tackle dealer. Hey Stan and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio. We're also keeping in contact with Wendy. Wendy. She and Merritt right now have been evacuating from the Thomas fire up out of Santa Barbara. They've got the truck loaded. I guess they're also taking care of some other people that are in their area before things really start getting uh, dire. Uh, But uh, that's one reason why she's not with us. We'll keep you updated on how they're doing, and I'm sure she'll tell us all about it next Sunday night. Hey, we want to welcome back to the show owner-operator of Chief Sports Fishing, Captain Rick Russell. Captain Rick, how are you doing this evening, sir? I'm good. How are you? Man, we are we are doing great, but I've got to tell you, you've just newly taken over the chief. You've done some some work on it. And, you know, I guess, were you thinking that, well, maybe we'll make some leisurely cruise down the Mexican coastline, get down to Collinet, maybe we'll catch some fish? Could you ever believe the bite? could be the way it is right now
8: you know with what's been going on i i wouldn't say i didn't necessarily believe it but uh i will say this is that i when this trip was originally booked that we just got in from it was booked as a rockfish trip And I was in touch with the Charter Master on a daily basis as far as what was going on, you know, down the beach and uh, on that bluefin ground. And basically what we did is we kind of left it up to the people. We knew that the fish were there and it was biting fairly well. And our people decided to trade in the Cod Sinkers for uh, fluorocarbon and, and small hooks. <laughs> so they made a wise decision. <laughs> they did. They did. And, you know, we got out there the first day, and there was a lot of boats, and the fish just did not really show itself. There were some guys that connected. We were not fortunate enough to do so. So we took off and started looking around different areas. And we ended up coming back to the area for our second day of fishing, and we were all by ourselves, and it was phenomenal, phenomenal bluefin tuna fishing. Wow. And we ended the day with, with limits of bluefin tuna. The amount of fish I saw was absolutely incredible, and I would say that our, the day that we had is a respectable day in the middle of the summer, let alone in
2: December. It it is absolutely nuts. For the last several years, I mean, that stuff has been around, but it usually disappears because of cold weather, rain, whatever happens. Uh, We get fronts that come through, and it moves the fish out of the area and out of our arena, and nobody can find it for a while. I don't think it went very far, actually, this last year. It seemed to be around when the guys got on it. They got back on it, and and this year we've been able to stay on it, but to have it all the way into Christmas here, we're still catching that fish, and numbers is absolutely a blessing for for you. You know, you're a new owner of a boat, man. Like this really helps. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean,
8: this is huge. Absolutely huge. You know, we've got uh... Go ahead.
1: Uh, when I was uh, talking uh, at the... Uh, uh, introducing that you were going to be on at the beginning of the show, I, s- I was also saying that... You're showing some of your fishermen a new wrinkle, and what I was kind of referring to was that from your counts that I saw at the end of last week and the beginning of the week, you went down, you loaded up with some rockfish, and then you got on the spot and you loaded up with bluefin tuna, and you came in with limits—pretty, pretty pretty near limits of bluefin tuna, limits of rockfish. I mean, what a great selection of catch, man! That's that's fantastic.
8: We got pretty lucky on that trip, you know. <laughs> we uh, we we got pretty lucky, and uh, you know we we uh, we didn't after we left the the area the first day. Our hopes were not very high, and uh, like I said, we uh, we kind of we did what we had to do, and I knew that that fish was around. I knew it was still out there. And that's why we went back after we uh, you know we got the people something to take home, and we decided to go back. and like I said, it was there, and it was all over the place. we uh, so we, we, we got to the area in the dark and we never moved the boat oh until gosh. we went until we left to go home, which was I mean it's been kind of far for the course out there. You know, and it, it seems like that stuff is a little bit pressure sensitive. And, like I said, we got out there. There was no one else with us, and we had a field day. It was absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, you know, we, we've got our colonette, rockfish, Baja coast stuff coming up here in January. And I don't want to jump the gun, but I'd be willing to bet that that bluefin's still going to be there and biting. Um. And you know, I I wouldn't be super upset if we had to switch those trips around and uh, <laughs> fish bluefin tuna in, in January and February.
2: I'll give your wrong stuff. I, I you were love catching. My,
8: I love cod fishing, but you know that that bluefin out there is pretty awesome. Uh, How the big was that the fish? fish that we, the grade we had was twelve to twenty five pounds. Nice. We did see a. Small signal of that bigger fish, I'd call it 80 to 100, 115, 110, 115 pounds. Yep. We never hooked any of it uh, the last trip we were out there, but we did see a very small signal. We watched it blow up in the in the chum and whatnot. But uh, I I think it's still there as well, It's that, but that smaller fish moved in and kind
2: of took everything over. Well, the small fish always did that for people that don't. Go out and and tuna fish a lot. A lot. When you've got that bigger fish that that are out there feeding, they're a little bit more lazy, and that smaller fish gets pretty aggressive. And that small fish moves in where the big fish are feeding, and they just take it over. And the big fish then kind of sink down, and they just take what's left over as it sinks down. They're pretty. They're opportunists for sure, but. When you get that little fish in, it happens, that whether you're bluefin fishing here or you're yellowfin fishing down below outside of Mag Bay or down at Clarion Island, you can have that smaller fish move in and take over. The big fish just kind of move out. Then you got to find an area where the big fish are, are feeding and they're, and that littler fish is not around.
8: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, that big fish is super fun to catch, but it's really not conducive for the majority of the anglers that are that are coming out on these trips. You're not kidding. And you know, with that being said, believe me, we had we had a, a trip. We took the boat out a few weeks back, and we went out there and we got on some of that big fish. It was just the crew and a couple of friends, and it was fine. But uh, as far as you know, bringing a load of passengers out there and fishing strictly big fish, it's It's really difficult because there's always going to be someone that isn't lucky, you know. And me personally, I would, and I think most guys in this industry kind of feel the same way. that We'd much rather see that smaller fish and, you know, an occasional big fish here and there. But like I said, we're more than happy to take whatever's available and we will do our absolute best to make our people go home with as much fish as possible.
2: Well, you know, on, the, on that side of things, if you've got a charter group and they, and they know what they're getting into, it, it's like, all right, we're going to give up the sinkers and just put the fluorocarbon on and just stay there because they all know. But most of the time you've got a group of people that want to catch fish, uh, and you're in the entertainment business basically, and I get them out there, get them hooked up, put fish on the deck, and, and everybody's happy. Absolutely. That's
8: that's exactly what we're about. You know, we will do anything and everything that our groups want to do, obviously within reason, and, uh, you know, we have no problem spending a little bit of time trying to, uh, you know, catch a big one if that's the route we need to go, but we would, of course, like to, you know, get something in the sack before we dedicate our Time into that big fish stuff because like i said you know it's just not people are paying a lot of money and they want to go home with with something
1: captain rick how's this bite changing you know from a from a few weeks ago it looked like we were talking about flat falls and poppers and uh, you know and earlier than that yummy flyers now and then we were talking about maybe fishing deeper and as stan alluded to fishing uh, uh, with some type of a, a weight or a sinker, and, and now uh, are you just fly lining? Are you drifting? Are you on the pay uh, the pick or what?
8: We fished on the anchor the entire uh, the entire day out there, and I would say I think we caught three or four fish on flat falls in the dark, and just before gray light, we had a couple of guys fly lining baits started getting bit on the fly line bait and it was a fly line deal the rest of the day, 20 to 30 pounds string. Nice. And, uh, like a one Oh two Oh hook was the go-to method. Fluorocarbon, of course. Um, the flat fall thing, like I said, there was a few guys that were fishing it. it. We didn't have a whole lot of interest in that type of deal, or at least our passengers didn't. Um, but the few guys that stuck it out and you know, I think they got a fish a piece on it. um, and after that, like I said, even well into the dark, into the evening, we were catching them on the fly line baits. Oh, my gosh. So that's kind of that's how it's been for us the last couple trips we've been out there. It's been, for the most part, straight fly line, 20 to 30-pound line. Um, we did have some guys get bit on the heavier string that were real persistent, smaller hooks, picking good bait, and... Uh, that was how we did it, and I I think most of the guys that have been fishing are doing the same type of deal. Right?
1: Are you metering a, a lot of bait out here, or what? What's keeping the fish out there? Are uh, is there a lot to eat, or are there so many fish out there that you're getting? Uh, you know, the fish to want to hang out with their buds, or, or or what's happening? What's the dynamic out there that at least you can see?
8: We never saw a lot of bait out there. I know there's been a little bit of squid that uh, some guys have been fortunate enough to snag up. We actually spent the entire evening with the lights on trying to trying to go that road. We never we never saw it. We drove around for a little bit, uh, kind of took a tour, and never, like I said, never saw it. We saw some pieces here and there. We haven't seen a whole lot of bait around there as far as what we've seen, but we aren't out there every single day like some of the other guys. Mm-hmm. Um but there the the volume of fish that was out there last week was absolutely incredible I mean in any direction you look, there was fish up splashing around um we had consistent fish from before the sun came up till after the sun came down, swimming under the boat and all around the boat. all right, Captain. So, Rick, uh-
1: in the upcoming uh, uh weeks before the holiday what kind of trips are you going to be offering and do you have room for people to get aboard with you
8: as it sits right now we're finishing up some maintenance and i would really really like to get back out there before uh before we start our that stuff i don't know if it's going to happen to be a 100 percent honest like i said we've got some some projects that we had to tend to, and we've got about another week and a half worth of uh, work to get done, and we're, we're hurrying our, our fastest to get that done, and if we can get it accomplished, that fish is still there, we're definitely going to see if we can get something up online, which we will have posted on the, uh, the landing website as well as our website and uh, our social media sites, Facebook and Instagram as well.
1: All right, Captain Rick Russell, uh, owner-operator of Chief Sports Fishing out of H&M Landing. Uh, Again, uh, uh, Captain Rick, uh, best way to stay in contact with you to find out what's going to be happening with the Chief here in the the next few weeks?
8: The best way would be to keep tabs on our social media, which would be Facebook and Instagram, Chief Sports Fishing on Facebook, and uh, on the Instagram, Chief underscore Sport Fishing as well as the landing, hmlanding.com. You can also call our office, and our office phone number there is uh, 949-441-9638. We'll uh, will have the office phone up and running here. And uh, we can take charter reservations and point anyone and everyone in the correct direction as far as what we've got going on in. Uh, with our schedule and and what we're going to be doing in the upcoming weeks here.
1: All right, Captain Russell from uh, Chief Sports Fishing. uh, Thanks a lot for cluing us in, man. I I can't tell you how exciting that report is and to hear what's happening out there, and we look forward to being out with the chief here real soon. Thanks a lot for being with us.
8: Thanks for having me on, and we'll talk to you guys soon. All right. All right, good luck out there. All right, Stan. Thank you. Just, thank you.
1: Just great fishing out there. We're going to hear more about the fishing, too, uh, later on in the show, but coming up in uh, the beginning of the top of the hour, Mike Shane, Director of Fishery Enha- uh, Enhancements for Hub SeaWorld. He's going to be with us, but we got to take a break right now. You're listening to Rod and Real Radio on AM540 or at ronrealradio.com. Stay tuned. There's still a lot more Rod Real Radio to come.
6: he's not just my fishing buddy after 30 years he's a brother and i'd sure hate to lose him his bass boat's got nothing to do with it so i make sure both of us wear a life jacket save the ones you love even if they don't own a fancy boat a message from california state parks division of boating and waterways quantum fishing's got something for everybody from the smallest angler into the oldest veteran we can get you out there fishing with the greatest reels on the market today From the all-new for 2016 Icon PT, to the tour mag, to the brand-new redesigned smoke reel, we've got something for everyone in your family. Have some fun. Take a kid fishing. They're the future of our sport. Quantum, we are performance-tuned. You can get your Quantum products at anglersarsenal.com or Mesa at
7: 619-466-8355. Attention Rod and Reel Radio listeners, be sure to check out the Code Group mobile app. You can listen to the Rod and Real radio show live along with show archives without internet access. The Code Group app has all kinds of cool features for fishermen, including daily Southern California saltwater reports, weather reports, episodes of inside sport fishing, marine traffic, and much more. Get the free Code Group mobile app. By texting the word real R E E L to nine zero four zero seven or enter the words code group in the app store on your smartphone. It's a
0: big deal, you know. I've always wanted to be on Rod and Real Radio Line. <laughs> <laughs> I won the Bassmaster Classic. I did a, a McDonald's commercial, but now I know I've made it. I fulfilled my dream. <laughs> that is just absolutely awesome.
1: Hey, Stan Vandenberg and I, we want to welcome you back to the second hour of Rod and Real Radio. Wendy's not here with us tonight. She's with her friend Merritt and also a group of other people. They are in the process of evacuating in the path of the Thomas Fire up there in Santa Barbara. We're getting a, a word from her every now and again. The trucks are packed. They're safe. They're helping some other people get on out of there, so... Wendy wants to send her apologies for not being with us tonight, but I know you all understand we, we wish Cindy Merritt and all the people up there a safe passage and staying out of harm's way. Hey, we want to uh, really welcome our next guest here to Ron Real Radio. He is the Director of Fishery Enhancement for Hub SeaWorld, Mr. Mike Shane. Mike, welcome to the show, sir.
9: Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, John.
1: Hey and Stan is with us tonight and and Mike, uh, gosh, I don't this program that you're running, I I I almost don't begin to know what to ask you with it because I know there's a lot of things out there that you guys do. I'm not familiar with it. So if you will will you just uh, take us through a little bit about how the program came about, how Seaworld is involved with it, because you know, a lot of times SeaWorld is getting a bad rap here that i don't think is justified but we you know tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the program there right now
9: yeah so we uh... work for hubs seaworld research institute and we were actually a non-profit organization that was started in nineteen sixty three a year before the seaworld park opened in san diego um, we were started by the founding fathers um, back then that built seaworld uh... and started our organization before they even opened up the park and had money for on the profit for profit side to, to fund the nonprofit side, so they were very forward thinking uh, back then, and and such started our organization with a mission to um, replenish or not sorry, for stocks, but um, to return to the sea some measure of the benefits derived from it. So all the research our organization does, not only our aquaculture program, but they all. Help to return in um, some measure benefit that, that that SeaWorld provides by having animals on display. We're able to either go in the park, use them sometimes for some of our research, but the work that we're doing around the globe, around the world, um, is it, it meets that mission of returning to the ocean some measure of the benefits that we all derive from it. With respect to our aquaculture program, which is one of our four kind of core areas or sustainable seafood, we have been um, working for over 30 years now, and primarily initially started off with the White Sea Bass um, program, stock enhancement program, over in the early 80s. And that was the program was started through legislation that was um, created as the ocean enhancement uh, stamp. And that money and that funding, um, the legislation that was written back in the early 80s, um, mentioned that you know they looked to use uh, aquaculture as a means to enhance or investigate the feasibility of enhancing um, marine fish populations that may be in peril or distress, and so at that back in that time, they looked at a couple different species, and actually white seabass was one of those. California halibut um, were well on the list, and actually when OHRAP got started, those are the two species that were actually being work was being conducted on. So our organization, Hub Seal Research Institute, is a contractor to the Department of Fish and Wildlife. So when you fish. In the ocean in Southern California, you buy your ocean enhancement stamp. That money goes to the department, and they um, manage those funds and and use us as their contractor to operate and run the program. So we have a hatchery in Carlsbad, where was uh, which was built in '95. Uh, prior to that, we were working down at another facility in Mission Bay. But how the program works is that um, we have broodstock, and so these are large, sex and mature adult white sea bass swimming around in captivity in tanks where we control the water temperature and the daylight in the tanks. And when the conditions in the tank get to be spring and summer conditions, uh, the fish spawn naturally. I mean, we don't uh, inject them with any hormones or anything like that to get them to spawn. All we do is just change the water temperature and the daylight in the tank, kept them well, keep them well fed, and uh, they spawn for us when the temperatures and the tank conditions get. Like I say, get to be spring and summer conditions. So we've got four tanks of brood stock. Each tank's on a different season, so we can produce eggs year-round. When the fish spawn, we can harvest up the eggs, and we quantify how many eggs came from that spawn. And we, um, years ago, working with our genesis, can tell how many females contributed to that spawn event. So each female, when they spawn in a tank, puts out about a million and a half eggs per spawn event, so quite a quite a quite a large amount of eggs. So we know if we get a volume of about three million eggs in a, uh, out of a spawn, we know that two females contributed to it. That activates sort of our genetics management plan that says we can release uh, up to like fifteen thousand uh, fish per female. So for example, a two female spawn event, thirty thousand fish can be eventually released out out the door. So. Uh, we grow the fish at the hatchery for about 90 days or so. Uh, once they get to be about that three months in age, <clears throat> we tag them at the hatchery. So a little small tag is put in the cheek or the head of the every single white sea bass that we grow out there. And then there uh, there's a huge volunteer support. I mean, we're not the only ones involved with this program. It's a it's a multi effort from a lot of different people and organizations to make this program a success. And one of those that's currently involved is the uh, California Coastal or sorry the Coastal Conservation Association the CCA. Yay. The CCA helps to support the grow out operations. These grow out operators, uh, volunteers that are up and down the coastline have various uh, fishing uh, nets and pens in various marinas and harbors up and down the coastline from Ventura <clears throat> all the way down here to San Diego and including Catalina Island. So we'll take fish and deliver them to these grow out sites at about three or four inches in size, these volunteers take care of them. We provide the food for a couple of months and then um, a couple of months. It could be as long as, you know, maybe four to six months um, where they're growing them out, get them for about eight to ten inches in size, and then release them in their respective areas or wherever they're wherever the pens are located. They just pretty much open the doors, drop the net, however, and, and the fish swim away. And then, obviously, with the tagging that we do, uh, that's, our responsible approach to being able to assess this program, so we have another program that goes out and tries to recover or recapture these tagged fish, and that's one of the programs that I've headed up uh, for 30 years now that I've been with our organization to go out and try to recover these uh, tagged uh, hatchery-reared fish. So we've recovered over 2,000 of these over the past, you know, 30 years, you know, and uh, we have our own what we call fisheries independent sampling program where we go out and set uh, nets and try to recover um, sub-legal sized fish. We've got special permits from the department to uh, be able to do this, and we try to recover them. get a, a shorter answer, a quicker answer to, you know, where the fish are going, how they're surviving. We also ask the fishermen to cut and save the heads off, and so we have freezers up and down the coastline. So once these fish reach 28 inches, fishermen can catch them or, and keep them, um, that's what we call in science, fishery science, kind of recruiting to the fishery. So now these fish are recruited to the fishery. Fishermen can catch them. We ask them uh, to cut off the head, save them, put them in one of these freezers. You know, provide some basic information on the date and location that they caught them, um, and then we'll we pick up the heads from these freezers, scan them for tags. So between that, these two programs, as I mentioned, uh, sampling efforts, you know, fishery-dependent, which relies on the fishermen and commercial fishermen, and the fishery-independent sampling, we recovered over 2,000 of these. And and we've seen fish as old as 15 years later come back to this program. I mean, the Pacific Ocean is an awful big pond out there mm-hmm. to be getting our fish <laughs> back. And these fish are not like a, a salmon. They don't need to return, say, to a certain bay or a stream you know, so it makes it a challenge in some respects to uh, try to recover these fish, but we're getting them back, you know, a lot of 13-year-old fish. I mean, most of our recoveries have been uh, just uh, less than probably two years out there, but we're getting some short-term, uh, you know, answers to what they're eating, if they start, how soon are they starting to eat, you know, fish out there. I mean, it's innate in these white sea bass and our hatchery fish to um, feed on other fish. I mean, they're called, they're as they get to be juveniles and adults, they're they, uh are called, uh, again, piscivorous, which means they eat other fish. So even in our hatchery, as fish are getting older and uh, if you're not keeping up on feeding them, you'll start to get cannibalism right. happening. So they're, they're eating machines. They're ready to go out and start eating right away. So um, we're we're assessing that, um, looking at, you know, trying to estimate survivorship and have published some papers on, on that and how the program's uh, effectiveness is and, and actually taking that information that we've learned and adaptively manage the program to change maybe some of our release strategies and and how we put fish out the door. Just because we can get eggs spawning, you know, from our fish year-round, probably grow fish year-round, doesn't mean it's probably the best thing to put fish out year-round. We know that winter months, that's December, January, and February, are, are months that we've seen traditionally where historically we've done releases in those months, and basically the survivorship has been pretty low in those months. So we've, you know, trying to give the fishermen, uh, your listeners and you included, that are paying for that ocean enhancement stamp more bang for your buck by trying to, again, release during the spring and summer months and the fall months when we know survivorship is better than it is in the winter months. So that is sort of in a nutshell, kind of how the, pro- the history of the program, who we are as an organization, and, and how it's been run and, and operated over this time.
1: Now, Mike, how large of a habitat here on the Pacific coast well, you find white sea bass? And then in comparison to that, how, how large is the release area that uh, you guys have worked in over the past years?
9: Well, you know, the habitat for white sea bass, they're, they're considered as adults uh, more of a coastal pelagic. I mean, they run all over the place. I mean, we've seen our fish come back 100 miles off the coastline at the Cortez and Tanner Banks. I mean, our hatchery fish have been caught out there. I mean, that's every time we get a tag back, it just gives us more information on what's what, what these fish are capable of and where they're going. So, for the juveniles, I mean, we're releasing them in the habitats, you know, in embayments mostly, and and most of the recoveries have come along the coastline in fairly shallow waters along the coast. You know, we're talking less than probably a hundred feet, so within a half a mile or quarter, you know, quarter mile of the coast, you know, you're catching a lot of these fish are being caught as uh, juveniles, um, and we're seeing a move there. We've even fish that have been released over to islands, Catalina in particular, you know, we see them in a short amount of time, come back across to the mainland and, and are over here on the mainland. So we think the mainland sort of along the coast here has better habitat, um, I mean, shallower, I don't know, whatever conditions are for the juveniles. And then as these fish get older, they recruit to the fishery, start seeing them you know move offshore a little bit i mean that's where a lot of the older tag recoveries have come back have been you know off of ventura and and offshore in these areas or in the islands and so you if you look at our graphs or figures that we've generated on where fish have been released and where they've been recovered you can see that a lot of these older fish of the 200 that we've gotten back that have been legal size have all come from or most of them have come from offshore areas you know the out, you know, federal waters and three miles out outside the state waters and the islands, etc. So, you know, we're people. We're still learning. You know, from this program, even though we've been operating it for thirty years, and, and exactly what is the habitat of a white sea bass? I mean, they may move around quite a bit, and travel up and down the coastline, go farther offshore, maybe travel south during the winter months, come back north. And so, I mean, there are other scientists trying to understand. Movement patterns of uh, the wild white sea bass, and whatever. I got a
2: question for you. Uh, you know, when you when you stock a uh, uh, a group of the juveniles in any location that you you put them in, do they do they tend to stay together that juvenile group uh, and then move together to other locations? Well, you say like Tanner or, or Cortez, you know, and and the guys catch them. Are they is that the same size fish that they're catching at that same group? Or do they move in with other groups of some of that bigger uh, and older white sea bass that's been traveling?
9: Yeah, I think they. Um, I mean, they they do disperse, and they you know they they probably break into smaller groups. I mean, we'll do releases of five, ten thousand fish. So I don't you wouldn't expect that whole group to stay together their whole lifetime. So they break up into smaller groups, I and mean, they're schooling fish, so they're they're out there in schools, and, and we've recovered our, obviously, our tagged fish mixed in with wild fish, and there's been occasions where we'll get a couple of tagged fish, at least our, with our own, uh, what we call our Fisher's Independent sampling our own gear that we put out there uh, to catch sub-legals. We'll see a couple of, you know, tagged fish that are from the same group, maybe a couple months later, you know, mixed in with wild fish. Um it's been on on rare occasions. Usually we just see one fish here or there coming in with, again, wild fish. So obviously the commercial fish and the recreational fish are catching them, and they're concentrating, you know, and on spots where they, the guys may be catching, you know, uh, numerous fish, 10, 20 fish if it's a the bites going off and in mixed in there is obviously our <clears throat> our, our tagged fish so you know we know that they're mixing in with with the wild population we find them again at juveniles and adults mixed in, in with there and on occasions for some of the juvenile fish we we found some from the same spawn still hanging out together but not not as frequently as we uh, would think it's just usually one 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 here or there you know mixed in with the wild fish.
1: Hey, Mike, we've got to take a break right now. Can I uh, ask you to stay over for uh, maybe another segment?
9: Yes, yes, mommy.
1: Hey, we are speaking with Mike Shane. He is the Director of Fisheries Enhancement for Hub SeaWorld. Stan and I, we're going to take a break right now, but we'll be back after these messages.
5: I like rafting. I love whitewater. But I never forget that snowmelt in the river can cause cold water shock. I wear a life jacket always. Anyone with me has got to do the same. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways.
6: Hey, everybody. This is a message for our listeners from a new Baja Magic Lodge at Cedros Island. Cedros Outdoor Adventures wants to make your dream of fishing Cedros Island a reality. Want to go after giant calicos or yellowtail with the best Cedros Island fishing organization, but you just don't know who to contact? Then give Cedros Outdoor Adventures a call at 619-793-5419, or even better yet, log on to their informative website at cedrosoutdooradventures.com. There you can visit their trip calendar and schedule a trip that's convenient for you. Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419 or their website of cedrosoutdooradventures.com.
5: I got a garage full of fishing tackle, and every time I get out on the water, I realize I forgot something important. But I never forget my life jacket. I make sure my buddies wear theirs, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways.
2: Hi, it's Tony Gwynn. Nobody treats you better. Nobody beats, El Cajon Ford.
0: nobody beats El Cajon Ford. Hi, it's Tony Gwynn Jr. For years, my dad said it so often. Nobody beats El Cajon Ford, and nobody treats you better. And that's so true. Now I am proud to join the El Cajon Ford team because with them, it's all about family. They treat you right. You're part of our family at El Cajon Ford. Thanks, Tony. We'll see you at Broadway in East Maine and ElCajonFord.com.
1: Hey, Stan and I, we want to welcome you back to Tosh- uh, Wind- <laughs> Ron Reel Radio. Wendy Tushahara, she is with Merit right now, and they are evacuating from the Santa Barbara area in the path of the Thomas Fire. We wish them well. Last word I got from Wendy is they, were, they had plenty of time to get together what they could. They were helping other people evacuate. So, Wendy, we are wishing that you stay out of harm's way over there. And praying for the best for both you, Merritt, and all the people that are affected by this fire right now. Hey, we want to we want to welcome back to Rodney Radio, uh, Mr. Shane, uh, Mike Shane. He is the director of Fishery Enhancement for uh, Hub Sea World, and and Mike, uh, the the white sea bass. Tell us a little bit about uh, you know their growth pattern to be twenty eight inches long, which is the minimum length. How old is that fish? And then when you get a fish that we've caught, some of them even this season, off our local coast, that are 60, 70 pounds. How old are those fish?
2: Yeah, And actually, I'd like to know what size do they have to be before they spawn?
9: Good, All good questions. So uh, we've actually, uh, that last question first, we've actually held fish in captivity that we've cultured. And we've actually seen them spawn at three years in age in our tank, um, so getting sexually mature fairly quickly and spawning. And so, how big is that fish? So that so that fish again in our tank, that's you know a three-year-old wild fish would be legal size, um, so twenty over twenty-eight inches. So I'm trying to remember we did that one of the first studies we did earlier on in this program. So you know they were probably about twenty-eight inches. They might have grown a little little faster and a little slower it just depends on the, on the tank you know the growth growth conditions are a little bit different obviously when you don't have predators chasing you around you sit there and <laughs> from the sky and you just open your mouth and it falls right in there so there's a little bit of difference there but uh in the wild we we uh did a growth growth study for white sea bass uh, several years ago looking at the and, and how you age the fish uh we use the otoliths or the bones and most of your listeners may call them the pearls or the in the heads uh, of I forget the other terms, but anyways, they're um, they're useful for us uh, scientists because we can actually take those. Uh, they're called the sagittal otoliths, and uh, and take and section those, basically cut them in half, and actually count rings like you would on a tree mm. to help. Aid, and that's how you age them. You you need to validate those and make sure you see a pair of bands or rings, and that equals one year of growth. And Fortunately, we've been able to do that because we have our, our hatchery fish. We know exactly how old those are, and as I mentioned earlier, we're getting tag fish back 13 years later, 15 years later, so we're able to take those and section their old lists as well and look at them and say, okay, we know exactly how old this fish is. It's been out in the wild most of its life. Um, you know, how does it look? And so we see precisely you know, what would we think we'd see, 13 pairs of bands, 15 pairs of bands if it's 13- or 15-year-old fish. So we feel confident in our aging for the wild fish, but we're counting these rings or bands as well, too. And so what we've seen is that uh, white sea bass, really in the world of fish, is considered a fast-growing, short-lived fish. Um, a, uh, the, uh, so they can reach the fishery, that is just get 28 inches, about two to three years in age, a wild fish. So they grow pretty, they grow pretty fast. The record white sea bass that was speared Back in 2007, by Bill Ernst, it was 93 pounds. A female. If you recall, he speared that off of uh, Malibu area. That uh, he sent us one of the oldest, and we aged that fish because we were just finishing our study at that time. So it was a nice contribution to that work. Um, and his fish at 93 pounds was 26 years in age.
7: Mm.
9: So, so really, I mean, at a 93 pounds, and I, I, I just you know, and 26 years, I. I don't think sea bass probably don't live much beyond 30 years If that. The oldest male we saw was only about 17 years old. So what we see with growth over the course of time is that the males, at about five years in age, the males and females are growing similar together. In about five years, you start seeing the males start to slow down in their growth. So their curve sort of uh, separates from the curve for females, and it kind of starts flattening out or stays lower. It's the females that keep growing and get larger. So when you talk about a, oh, I caught a 50 pound sea bass. I know a lot of guys in the earlier days of the program were saying, "Ah, 50 pounds? That's way too big for this program." You know, we don't don't cut the head off, don't save it because that's not not going to be a hatchery fish. Well, a 50 year old fish is only about 10 years in age, like mm-hmm. sea bass. 60 pounds, about 15. So I mean, uh, again, there's no sea bass. That's out there because we've been operating for 30 years now. That could not, you know, that that no sea bass out there that has the potential to, to not be hatchery pro uh, hatchery fish. So they 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 all could be uh, hatchery fish that are out there. And usually the again the bigger heavier uh, fatter ones that the that the fishermen are catching they tend to be the, the females. When you start talking about the 50, 60, 70 pounds and up type of, of size range.
1: All right, Mike yeah, and and. When a fisherman catches a white sea bass and it's a legal fish, what should they look for with regards to tagging and then on that tag what information is on that tag that will help get that what part of the fish that is you know is needed back to you so that uh, you can uh, study it.
9: Yeah. So the tags that we uh, put in all our fish are invisible. They're inside the head. You you wouldn't know um, if you caught a hatchery fish or not, and, and we wouldn't want you to know necessarily. Uh, we want to get an unbiased sample from the fishery. That's why we ask you to cut the head off of every single sea bass that is caught and saved and get it to one of these freezers up and down the coastline so that we can verify or see uh, exactly what our contribution is uh, to the fishery from a hatchery fish. So if we were getting all we were getting back, was tagged fish because you can thats all you see—and everyone would just be saving the tagged fish. We really wouldn't have an idea of what our contribution is. They would say, "Yeah, it's 100 percent all we're back is tagged fish," but we know that's not the case. Uh, right now, with the sampling that we're doing, we're seeing about one in every three to 400 fish that we scan for these tags. We need to head back. There's a special wand that we have that has to detect this tag. That's what we're seeing. So it's basically less than one percent, less than a half a percent, is really what our contribution is out there. And we're releasing so few fish, and the scale of things. I mean, we released in thirty years about two and a half million fish um, to date with the program. So, So, but the yeah, go ahead,
1: Mike. uh, Are you then, uh, in your estimation, in looking at this program, has this program in your mind's eye has it been very successful? moderately successful were the white sea bass going through uh uh you know some type of a cycle like we find salmon doing up in the pacific northwest in alaska uh how do you determine the success of what you're doing here
9: yeah that's that's a good question and and to uh to be open and honest we just had a for the first time in the history of the program in the last two years we've had an independent review that's been conducted um external review by scientists from around the country that are experts in their various fields. For example, a geneticist, an aquaculture person, a stock enhancement person, a croaker biologist, and we see that they're in the croakers' family. So these uh, folks have met uh, for the last two years, and, and we provided them with everything that we've done, We uh, and they've reviewed the program, and, and this report should be released on uh, the department, uh, again, as the uh Funders and operators of the program will release this report. I think early this next this coming year is the plan, and they'll be the the, the, the contacts or the lead on it. And again, we're just the contractors to the department and been fortunate enough to, to help them along the way. Um, so, when you talk about successes, <clears throat> um, you know we we've, we've basically learned a lot about the culture of marine fish and white sea bass and basic and have become world leaders in our marine finfish aquaculture. I mean, we're doing a lot of other collaborations and a lot of other work because of the work that we're doing, so, um, you know, there's a success in in learning, and, um, you know, a lot of students, college students, et cetera, have learned and gotten their degrees, et cetera, by working in our aquaculture program, so, you know, there's a success. We put out, you know, a number number of papers and publications uh, in regards to this program, so, you know, there's a success, so... You know, it's it's a it's a huge under a huge program, and, and so it was evaluated on all those <clears throat> all those levels. And initially, the this ORHAP, or half of the Ocean Resources Enhancement Program was started as the uh, to assess the feasibility of enhancing wild stocks. And along the way, it's kind of gotten changed to you know enhancing. But the funds and the money have always been a challenge for this program, being underfunded to really release. And provide the numbers of fish that that we we uh, think need to be put out there to make a contribution civic a contribution so the challenges is some of the challenges there hasn't been you know uh, really hard goals or guidelines set unfortunately for the program we've been we've've we've, over the 30 years have, have shown what's possible and what we can do with this program you know commensurate with adequate funding and, and so that's a huge positive and huge success with this program. So we know what we can do. Now, you know, can we get funding for it to do it? You know, is the department, you know, willing to continue the program and, and fund it at a better level, or what, what would they like to see? And so I think as part of this, early next year, they're planning on setting up some meetings probably along the coastline with the fishermen and getting their input. Because obviously it's it's you guys and your constituents and your listeners that are helping to fund this program so the department wants to know how you feel and, and you know really you know you want to keep operating this program you know right now actually we've just been doing white sea bass but we've already been talking about other species and certainly California halibut is on the, on the, the, the plate as well too now and it was in the earlier part of the program and this fish that we we're working on and now I think we're back to maybe working on halibut. Um, as well, too, and so we're we're we have been for the last couple of years been working with California on separate funding, not on the ORHAP funding, but trying to uh, you know p- refine our culture techniques and and hopefully you know be able to release those fish too to help you know enhance those stocks as well here in the future.
1: Well, you know, I can say uh, from the fisherman standpoint, there sure was a time when we were just not catching any white sea bass out there, and now if you go out and you target them. You can stand a reasonably good chance of catching fish and catching some nice fish, and I've got to say that that's attributed to the work that you guys have done. Because there was a time when they just weren't there, and now they are. So we got to thank you uh, uh, definitely for that.
9: Well, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, variables in this, and we certainly are uh, one of those, like we say, tools that fisheries managers can use. And the fisheries managers are Department of Fish and Wildlife. So, I mean, we were kind of humble in, in saying that, you know, we're putting fish out there. You know, is it really us or not? I mean, we're still trying to, you know, assess the program. But, you know, management regulations have changed. And natural, you know, conditions, there's envir- environmental variability have changed. And there were some good years um, here in the 90s <clears throat> and the early 2000s that were good for for survival of, of juveniles unfortunately um you know i think and i've talked to a lot of fishermen you know after me and just like you mentioned you know fishing seems to be good right now but it certainly have more of a chance to go out targeting them i think a lot of this has to do with social media and you hear you know somebody catches a fish and it just goes almost viral and so i think in some cases it makes it seem like you know fishing's really really good but when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it and the numbers um not you know, not uh, as, as well. Um, and I hate to be a, not to be a Debbie Downer, but you know, it's just uh, we need to continue to to manage this fishery and and hopefully you know enhance it with with more uh, hatchery fish as well too as a tool.
2: We know we had the years that we didn't have the the white sea bass for quite a while, but there and then it, it started to make come back. We've had years where we haven't had anchovies. And we didn't have sardines. Well, we got sardines and no anchovies. The anchovies just started to come back. The white sea bass made a big, a big move. And I wouldn't sell what you're doing short because you've made a difference. And, and that's for sure. Being in, I, I started out to be a wildlife biologist. Didn't quite make it, but I understand all of the ins and outs of what has to be done to keep a fishery going. And, and that without having anyone to do what you're doing, we'd be, in, we'd be toast. Uh, and and that fish does move. It, it it doesn't always stay in Southern California. It can move into Mexican waters. It it does yeah. move around a bit, depending on current changes and and where the food is, because they follow food. Um, that's yeah. just part of the the life of a fish. So, you know, a lot of that. There's a lot of different things that come into play when you're talking about any species of fish, where it goes and what it does as it lives. Yeah. Um, and I know that the commercial fishery. Um, for that fish, has they've cut a lot of it deep before the fishermen ever got it up against the shoreline here, uh, and that makes a big difference, too. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
9: yeah. So, go on, go right. back. I was going to say, no, I mean, the fisheries certainly changed over the years, and, and yeah, they like, you know, Going after you know squid of squid running around it seems to be you don't find the sea bass and you know the the candy you know they I think they like that almost like a delicacy to them but uh, the squid versus you know eating bait fish but I know you know the, the, prior to the I guess the early early 1900s you like, never really heard of, of uh, squid being one of the, the, the gut contents or uh, it was always uh, fish so it's interesting now how that how that's changed but. Yes, the commercial fishermen, you know, being pushed—that's another management change that have happened by you know putting them pushing them outside of state waters into federal waters. I think that's helped overall. With again, it could be you know the, the fish that are <clears throat> that are near shore. Certainly, you know, you see uh, uh, as we've seen in our own sampling, you know, these fish, other species, you know, coming back that you just weren't prevalent. Like for example, the giant sea bass. Now, scientists in the last few years have been able to start studying them again and be able to look. And, and these large spawning aggregations that they form, and, and actually finding young of the year fish on sandy bottoms on these beaches and stuff now. So, yeah, there has been certainly been been changes. And, and uh, you know, for our program, I think you know we've only we've only tagged our fish. We've never really tried to do a whole genetics assessment. But genetics has gotten more powerful and stronger. And so, some of the studies that were have been engaged or trying to think about is, you know, taking and looking at all the fish that we collect, not just the the, the, the tag fish, but taking genetic samples and be able to identify, I think that's a more stronger way to do it, to identify your contribution to the fishery. So not only are you able to tell, is this a hatchery fish, but is this an offspring from a hatchery fish or two or three generations back came from a hatchery fish? Mm-hmm. So that's the contribution that that we really don't understand and it probably has been certainly our fish spawning out there is just that so we don't, we don't, uh, unable to assess that or haven't been able to assess that today.
1: Well, Mike Shane, uh, if we want to stay in contact with you, find out what's happening there at, at hubs, uh, uh, sea world research, or even make a contribution to the, uh, fishery enhancement programs, how's the best way to go about doing that?
9: Well, to, um, you, you can reach out to our organization at, uh, and go to our website at hswri.org. There's, you know, ways to, to donate. And, and, you know, if you're so inclined want to earmark funds for our, our work in our aquaculture program, we are able to, to do that. But um, that's that's the um, the best way to do that, or obviously buy your sport fishing license and, and fish in the ocean. That goes to the department that will help to manage the and program do you have with the life to- funds.
1: Do you have enough grout stations right now, or if there are organizations that could be a possible grout <clears throat> station, uh, do you need more?
9: Yeah, we need we need we need more. I'm to say productive, I'm um, going productive sites or do we, you know larger pens uh, where we can really you know make a significant contribution to that. I mean, the fishermen, you know, the the recreational guys have certainly been huge. Uh, support of this program and, and the pens that they're doing. I mean, we know uh, based on what we've published, you know, it's critical for these fish to sort of get into these pens as opposed to releasing them directly from the hatchery. Their survivorship is higher uh, in all seasons compared to direct releases. So, you know, these pens are certainly have helped to, even with a few uh, recaptures that we're getting back and then a few percentage, are kind of, certainly have helped to increase the survivorship of our fish that are being released. So, Certainly you know more more of these sites that are larger um deeper a little bit deeper water um that uh some of the sites we currently have challenges with because they're warmer water and sea bass don't do well, especially mm-hmm. as juveniles and when it gets a little warm, but we're managing that and trying to get you know uh, not get fish in these in some of these grass sites when the water gets a little bit a little bit warm but uh, That certainly would be, you know, uh, ideal and and, and help us down the road. Uh, Again, depends if if, if it's it's the right site and the right location.
1: All right, Mike Shane from Hub Seaworld, Thanks a lot for taking some of your Sunday to be with us. Learned a lot tonight, and I can't tell you as a fisherman how much we appreciate your efforts, and we look forward to checking in uh, with you from time to time to see things are going. Thanks a lot for being here.
9: You're welcome. Thank you for having me, John and, and Stan. It was my pleasure. No, that was very informative. Thank you
2: very much. You're welcome.
1: We're going to take a break right now. Coming up next, uh, Rob Tressler. He's going to tell us a little bit about, he's just back on the trip as a recreational angler, how the bluefin are doing out there. So stay tuned. There's still a lot more Rod and Real Radio to come.
4: The warm weather is here and our lakes and rivers are brimming. Just remember, if you love California and you love to boat, please wear your life jacket. And make sure everyone with you puts one on, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways.
2: Hey, bass fishermen. Who do you call for your bass boat insurance? If you're not calling me at 1-800-BASS-BOAT for your boat insurance, you're probably paying too much and may not have the coverage that you need. In 1974, I developed the Bass Boat Program, It is what all the pros use today. The reason? No depreciation or any partial claim for your hull, your big motor, your trolling motor, or your electronics until your boat's 10 years old. That's right. You only pay $250 to get your boat on the water for any partial claim. And we still pay a stated value replacement cost for your boat if you have a total loss. We're the only people in the industry that does that, and that's why we are the choice of the pros. So if you want the best, forget the rest. Just call 1-800-BASSBOAT. Call 1-800-227-7262 or just spell BASSBOAT. 1-800-BASSBOAT. I know there's too many letters, but the T is free and the call's on me. That's 1-800-BASSBOAT, the choice of the pros for bass boat insurance. For more information, log on to 1-800-BASSBOAT.com.
7: Rod and Real Radio is now available as a podcast you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Get notified as soon as new episodes are available, or go back and listen to our past shows. Browse through all of our archive shows at rodandrealradio.com slash archives, and click the subscribe button to get started listening now.
1: Hey, Stan and I, we do want to welcome you back to Rod and Real Radio. You know, we just had uh, uh, Mike Shane on from us from uh, Hub World and he was talking about the uh, fish enhancement stamp that we pay for in our license. You know, and we've had some conversations over this past year about the 365-day license not being available, if it's going to be available. Well, there is some legislation coming on down the road that may fix that. But the best thing to do is just to get on wildlife wildlife.california.gov and get your 2018 fishing license right now. You can get it for your friends. You can get it for your family. It makes a great Christmas gift. You don't have to worry about whether it's going to be a 360-day license, because if you get it now, you know it's going to be good for all 2018.
2: So I make sure that my family knows that, that they should one of them should get me that for Christmas.
1: Oh, what a... You know what a quick and easy way to do cuz you can sit down in the comfort of your own home you can use your your iPhone your computer just go to wildlife.california.gov you can give them the information you can get the license you get a uh, you can print a temporary license that's good the minute that you print it if you need something to stuff into a stocking and the hard copy is sent to you in the mail in about 5 working days so what you can't get a better Christmas present for a fisherman stand.
2: No, no, no. It's a gift that keeps on giving all year long.
1: All right. Hey uh, Jorge,
2: uh did we get
1: uh, get in contact with Rob? No, i did not. Okay. All right. I think Rob and Lori, I think they're still out on a half day boat that they took that they hopped on aboard <laughs> as soon <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Those those two people can't help themselves. You know, I mean, it's like they they've got the bug. And it's a good thing. I, I I I can appreciate it. I know you can too. Because this fish is that's available now. It may not be available long, but they take every opportunity to jump on one of these boats, and they have made a a real serious in, endeavor to make sure that they get they get a shot at the big fish. I see them on facebook where lori's battling one of those big dogs they got a couple of them the other day that they were hanging together uh they were big dogs um and but they turn around and go back out as soon as they possibly can to, to get as much of this as they can before it quits.
1: well you know uh, if you pick up the current issue of western outdoor news go through somewhere right in about the middle there is a photograph of rob and there i think Lori's fish is like 148 pounds. Rob's fish is 162 pounds. And when Lori came on over to the shop to pick up a copy of uh, the Western Outdoor News, she says, you know, that wasn't even my biggest fish for the day. And, you know, we're only talking about 10 days ago that uh, uh, they went on out and uh, went uh, uh, fishing on the Aztec. So, uh, you know, guys, it's a great time to go. We had Captain Rob on. Can you imagine? You go out on a two and a half day trip. You load up on great rockfish, and because you're on a two and a half day trip, you get two days worth of limits of tuna. You come on back. You get on those bluefin tuna. You limit out on that. Stan, is there a better trip to go on?
2: That's that's really unique. It's like telling the guys you know that go on a half day boat that what which has happened. You know, normally you're going to go out and catch. You know, tom cod and and mackerel and some sand bass or maybe a, a barracuda or bonita, and then next thing you know, you're on bluefin. <laughs> Could be two hundred pounders or or that hundred pounders and, and or yellowfin. It, it's been just a crazy, crazy bite this year again.
1: You know, we've been talking about a couple of the boats, the Chief and uh, uh, the Aztec, but I know the Pacific Queen, the Liberty. There's been a number of boats that have been going out there. Check with your local landing. Also check at uh, H&M Landing, because I know Chuck Taft has been going out there in the legend, and he's been coming back loaded with fish. So, you know, this isn't a bite that's going to be here for a long time. And, and Stan, I didn't even want to ask any of the guys what happens at the beginning of the year when the Saners can go back out here again, where they? You know, when, again, they have their quotas to, to fill.
2: Well, you know, that's... That's a good question because the, the stuff is pretty, I mean, they're, they're still around. The big fish kind of moved around. They moved out. They were out in the 60 uh, for a while, and they've kind of moved off, and there's some hit and miss on that, but there's other smaller fishes in here in numbers. I mean, they're going out and getting limits on that smaller stuff regularly. So and the yellowfin moved down, moved around someplace. They kind of disappeared, but they come. It seems like, you know, if you had enough boats out there, because it takes boats to find the fish. Um, Somebody comes up with a bite, and all of a sudden you get on them for a couple of days, and then the fish moves around. So we'll see what happens with the weather pattern. Um, I mean, I know I leave on the (laughs) 3rd. Heck, I'm leaving for Texas here next week, and then I'll be back for two days or three days, and I climb on the Independence on the 3rd, and I'll be gone until the 17th. On a 14-day trip on my my regular uh, charter group, And we're going to go down and chase that big stuff around and see what happens after Christmas. And we'll give them a little bit of a break and then go down and attack first thing of the year.
1: That'll be great, you know. But, you know, Stan, I know that's a trip that you and your friends look forward to every year, and it's uh, normally packed way ahead of time. But, you know, it's the type of a thing that we, this past few months and even now, we're almost experiencing that same type of fishing, but we're only talking about day-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-day trips. It, it, it's such a unique opportunity right now.
2: Well, you know, it, it, it has been. We've had that big 100-pound to 200-pound bluefin, and over on the, in, where they, uh, they get on the boat at 9 o'clock at night in the morning. You're up at 3 and 4 in the morning in the dark fishing for that stuff, and it's been, you know, they'd get it early in the morning, they'd switch tactics, and they'd get a slow pick all the way through the day and come back with limits of that, even that big stuff. Look at some of the boats that had, you know, numbers of those uh, fish over 100 pounds where everybody, everybody in the boat had, like Lori and, and her, husband, or her boyfriend, I don't know if he's the husband yet, but, the but they, they, you know, when you're talking 140, 160-pound fish, that's not usual for an overnight trip. Not in our lifetime, let's put it that way. Um, We had the big bluefin come back through here, what was it, 98 or something like that? Um, And my quest was to try to catch a 100-pound bluefin because that was out of the question. I ended up with one day. Back then they didn't have the limits, but I had six of them in a two-day trip. Um, It was on a four-day trip, but I had six of those fish over 100, which is bonus round for me i mean i was a great trip but nowadays you can go out there they cut the limit down but you're looking at 140 150 200 pound 250 pound bluefin that's phenomenal uh, it, it just doesn't get any better
1: you know it's also good to know uh stan is that you know very little of this fish is going to waste it, people that are non-fishermen or don't get a chance to go out there this often and go you know we're hearing about them bringing in you know triple-digit fish, uh, where is this fish going? Who who can eat that much fish in a matter of time? And I, I've got to tell you what's happening, especially in talking with Lori and Rob, and I know a lot of the fishermen are doing that. They take their fish, they bring it into the processor. Five-star processing is one of them down here. It's uh, vacuum-sealed. It's put in portions. And then if they want to dedicate some of that fish To go to one of the homeless shelters uh, throughout the the San Diego, Southern California, that goes out as a source of protein, which I know is much needed by those places.
2: And then, you know, right now, more than you know, you can get in contact with some of these shelters that are taking care of the people that have been burned out. We did that for the fires back. You know, 10 years ago in San Diego when they had all the problems down there and they had all the people displaced, we did it for Katrina when uh, all the people came out from Katrina in Florida. This is another time. If you've got fish, make phone calls and find out where you can help feed some of the people that have been burned out by these fires in Southern California. It can make a big difference, guys.
1: All right. Hey, Stan, that's about it for tonight. Thanks a lot. Again, another interesting show. We, we kind of go where no show's ever gone before, I think. So. Well,
2: you know, that's our job because the rest of them can't.
1: All right. Hey, guys, that's it for tonight. And uh, Merritt and Wendy, I hope you're out of harm's way. I know you're listening if uh, you're in your truck trying to get out of there. So keep safe, please. And that's it for tonight, everyone. We want to thank uh, Jorge and the AM540 Studios. I want to thank Ben Harvey here in San Diego, always in memory of Big Tuna Bill, Eddie McEwen that really got this show launched, and also in memory of our good friend Paul Lita that helped support us for many years, Al and Ford. Thank you very much. Hey, we want to thank you for listening, giving up some of your Sunday night. Now you can go back to the football game because it's probably just getting interesting. We'll see you next Sunday night. Better yet, let's see you during the week on the water because... Someone's catching their fish, your fish, and they're out there and getting away. Good night, everyone. We'll see you next week.
2: i tell you what. Every time I go out to your place, you gone fishing. How oh,
0: you know. Well, there's a sign upon your door. Uh-huh. Gone
9: fishing. I'm real gone, man. <laughs> you ain't working anymore.